listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetsluk. Today, it is the evening of Monday, the 28th of November in uh, 2022 here in Seoul, and I'm joined via Zoom by journalist and author Bradley Hope to talk about his new book, The Rebel and the Kingdom. Before we get started, I'd like to remind all of you, please, to leave a review about this podcast wherever you can. Spotify allows ratings but not reviews. Apple Podcasts allows both. And you can like and subscribe to us on YouTube. Uh, secondly, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. And thirdly, follow me on Twitter at JackoZ and nknews at nknews.org. For podcast suggestions, questions, and feedback, you can tweet at us or email us at podcast at nknews.org. All right, my guest today, Bradley Hope, is a journalist and author of a new book called The Rebel and the Kingdom, subtitled The True Story of the Secret Mission to Overthrow the North Korean Regime. Out now. Welcome on the show, Bradley Hope. Thank you very much. Uh, so if you would start by explaining the title, I assume that the kingdom is North Korea, but who's the rebel? It's, it's, it's Adrian Hong. Aha, okay. Adrian Hong, of course, the founder of a group that was once called Cholima Civil Defense, now called Free Chosun. Could you tell us a little bit about that? When was that founded and, and what is its mission? So Cholima Civil Defense was kind of created by Adrian Hong in, in, in bits and pieces over the years. You know, he was obviously a well-known human rights advocate mm -hmm. related to North Korea. And um, I think from a very young age, he had a side of him that wanted to be more proactive in a way that you couldn't be in a public way. Mm. You couldn't you couldn't do the things he wanted to do publicly or talk about them. And so he it, so it kind of started off in bits and pieces, almost like intelligence gathering. Um, and then over time, as as some of these things that became more like missions started to evolve, Cholema Civil Defense came into to a being as more of an organization. And in a way you could really date it in a public way to the um the rescue of Kim Han Sol and his family, obviously after the his father was assassinated in Malaysia. Yeah. That was the first event that people began to know Cholema Civil Defense exists. There was there was activity prior to that, but that was the first big event. And that was also a catalyzing event for the group, you know, mm. to to be more public about their activities. Yeah, I want to come back to that uh, that group uh, that sorry, that act, that mission in a moment. Would you say that the mission of Free Chosun is or was really to overthrow the North Korean government and system? Yeah, I think so, because it was a, it was an evolution for Adrian over many years, obviously starting with Liberty in North Korea, the group that he co-founded um, mm -hmm. at Yale that became a kind of global advocacy group and eventually involved in, the, in, the, in helping escapees. But it was never enough. These, all of these kinds of things were never enough for Adrian. And so he kept drifting deeper and deeper into more risky intervention style activity. Mm. Um, and so I think the culmination is Free Joseon because Free Joseon's mission was to not only create a government in exile, something that has never really existed before in relation to North Korea, but also to kind of take quite aggressive acts against the state of North Korea. So obviously we know that in the Spain incident, which I'm sure we'll talk about more, yeah. they, they they broke the pictures of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-un. Sorry, I'm getting myself mixed up here. Sorry. Oh, they, I, think, anyways, I think that's Kim Jong-il, the, the second leader. Yeah, Kim Jong-il, exactly. They they broke the these these pictures in a yeah. kind of symbolic act, right? Yeah. To signal to maybe the international community that one thing, that, that they can do such a thing. And then to, to any North Koreans, whoever were to find out about it, that the state of North Korea isn't mm. a kind of um, God-protected, invincible uh, yeah. dynasty. So, yeah, yeah, I think, no, I don't think they, they never said outright, even on their website, that they're trying to take down the regime. But if you look at, the, if you read their rhetoric over time, it became more and more aggressive, more and more about hastening the end mm. of the of the Kim dynasty. So... That's how. That's definitely how I interpret it. Now, apart from Adrian Hong, what kind of people have become members of Free Chosen over time, and 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 what would be its maximum size, as far as you can tell? Well, it's one of those things where there's obviously a kind of a core group, maybe maybe a couple dozen at most, and then beyond that, there's a whole spectrum of volunteers that are mm. associated, and then sometimes they're associated in ways that they don't even know that they're part of a organization called. Cholema Civil Defense or Free Josan. So it's hard to say it in a very precise way. A lot of the members of the group 
are essentially people that Adrian met over the years who felt passionately about North Korea and felt like the traditional means of dealing with North Korea were not enough and that they wanted to do something bigger. And, and, and Adrian was really good at encouraging people to think that they could make a difference, mm. that they could do something bigger, you know? The, the makeup of the group is quite interesting. Obviously, in the book, I was careful not to identify anyone who hasn't been identified already because no. there's a risk, obviously, uh, a physical risk for those people. And um, it was just a decision that I made. But what I did learn in the course of my reporting is that the group, the people that were volunteers for this group, included different kind of subsets. One of them was um, escapees from North Korea, people mm -hmm. who have an enormous burden of guilt about being able, being the ones to get out while others didn't. So and often survivor's those, guilt? Survivor's guilt. And even worse with North Korea is that survivor's guilt is also almost like a victimization guilt because they know that people they loved may have mm -hmm. actually suffered worse mm -hmm. because of their escape. It's not just that they got out, it's that their family members may have been hurt or imprisoned or yeah. found their social standing diminished considerably. Another group is um, the same sort of people that became interested in liberty in North Korea, Link. Um, people that were uh, Korean Americans or, you know, Korean descendants in different mm -hmm. countries in the world who felt a, a great kinship to this cause. And um, But for the most part, what I found really amazing is a lot of these people had very normal jobs. You know, mm -hmm. they weren't like former spies or something. They were more like bankers mm. and accountants and teachers and things like that. And so this was almost like an unbelievable extra secret, extra curricular activity for them. Mm. And and I really attributed to Adrian that he was able to persuade people that this was not only a good idea, but also that they could make a difference, even though they didn't have resources, yeah. uh, you know, on, on any significant level or expertise beyond you know, just the willingness to do something different. Did you find any members of North, of uh, Free Chorson to not have ethnic Korean heritage? Yes, there was there was certainly some people in the group that are not of Korean heritage. Um, there are people that at some point or another became deeply enmeshed in the plight of North Koreans, mm. primarily, you know, so there, there are people who were activists or maybe even just one-time volunteers or, or they could even just be people that were mesmerized by adrian hong and yeah. he had that ability with people sort of a, a charisma a magnetism yes a magnetism the magnetism of a kind of civil rights leader you know mm. and and it's completely fair for anyone to have conflicted feelings about the way he approached things yeah. but anybody who ever met adrian uh, would would have felt a few things. They would have felt his utter confidence in the in the cause of the good to overcome whatever obstacles were in its way, and and also uh, an unfailing belief that it's it's the human rights of the people of North Korea trumped everything else. Mm. So you know he had it's a contrarian take. You only might find that in actually kind of the religious community of this idea that. All of this discussion of nuclear weapons is distracting from the only thing that really matters. It's it's human rights violations mm -hmm. on a massive scale over a long period of time. And so those that kind of belief inspires people just the way that I'm sure a young person who meets like Martin Luther King would feel or or Malcolm X or um, and on a more controversial level. Um, you know, some of the quite extreme abolitionists mm -hmm. who believed uh, that they could, that any means were necessary to right a wrong when it came to slave owning. And so he had that kind of magnetism to him. Now, uh, Charlie Myers Civil Defense, or Free Chawson, uh, is known chiefly for two acts or two missions, which you've already mentioned. The first is in March 2017, uh, getting Kim Han Sol, son of the assassinated older brother of Kim Jong Un, that's Kim Jong Nam, out of Macau and onto the Netherlands and thence to parts unknown. Uh, and the second act or mission is the raid on the Madrid embassy almost two years later in um, in February 2019. Let's uh, start with the first one with the Kim Han Sol escape. Uh, in early that year, there's a man named uh, Christopher An who was called by Adrian Hong when he was on vacation in Manila. And uh, these two men got together and, and uh, smuggled Kim Han Sol out of uh, Macau via Taipei onto a third country. How much time did they spend preparing that mission? 
Well, it's, it's actually a little bit different than that. What, what happened was, like I said before, Adrian has been cultivating almost like a network his entire mm. life. From the moment he was in, uh, uh, you know, in the sophomore year of college up till now, he was cultivating a network of people that he thought would be important or interesting in this lifelong mission to help liberate North Korea. Along the way, he would he would meet anyone, and and actually, people that had some sort of an edgy background related to North Korea would be attractive to him. So, for example, Kim Han Sol was interesting to him because of his father, who's a controversial figure, who was a controversial figure and, and not necessarily like, quote, the good guy in, in mm. things. But because of this, the importance of the bloodline, it was he was an interesting person for Adrian. And Adrian was interested in finding people like yeah. that, people with a, even if it's a unfounded dynastic right, if, if he could persuade them to see the world in the way he sees it or to or to kind of link up, it would be a very attractive proposition. For, for North Koreans that were feeling or or could feel motivated to rise up against the North Korean regime. And so this network of Adrian's was always coming into effect and always triggering. And, and even in, to some extent, I was part of Adrian's network in that I met him in 2011 and we stayed mm. in touch and we talked about many things in the world that were happening. And I would ask his advice about things to do with North Korea just to see if there was something that I could cover, some kind of an interesting journalistic angle. So when there was the assassination of Kim Jong-nam, in, in the phone book of Kim Han-sol is not that many mm -hmm. people, right? He's not, he's he's lived a kind of careful, secretive life because of who his father is, because of the risks they sure. faced. And then there was no real plan, it seems, for if if the father suddenly disappears or is killed. So the first person he called, or among the first people he called, was Adrian, saying, Adrian, I'm, I'm thinking about what yeah. to do. And my understanding is that Adrian said, I think you should get out of there. You're not safe. And if and at first, Kim Hansel said, no, I think we're okay here in Macau. We're, we're going to be okay. Then a matter of hours later, he called Adrian back and said, you know what? I think I agree with you. We're not safe in Macau anymore. You know, it's reported that their, their bodyguards disappeared and, and they suddenly felt like they were unprotected. But so, let me just interrupt for a second there and ask a question. Have, yeah. have you any idea about why... Those uh, police or bodyguards in Macau suddenly left from outside the compound? You know, my, my interpretation would be less about whether or not there was like some sort of concerted plan and more that Kim Hansel and his family felt unprotected. Mm. You know, I, I it's hard to ascribe yeah. a lot of value to that. But, you know, per, per, perhaps the security guards were more affiliated with the Chinese end of the bargain and th their kind of reckoning about what to do after in the in the in the aftermath of the assassination is obviously played into into effect there right um but i don't know the yeah. answer now adrian didn't really have a true underground organization he had just a network mm -hmm. of people people that knew what he was trying to do and so when he has a mission he calls up people and he kind of builds the team for the mission it's not like a a standing group right they're not sitting in an office waiting around for things to happen and so in in calling around he realized that one of his volunteers somebody who is not really instrumental at all in any of the the core thinking about cholema civil defense happened to be in mm. asia right a lot of these a lot of these guys are um korean americans or they're based in america or the uk europe so it just happened that christopher was on a trip to the philippines yeah. And he was a very reliable volunteer for the group. You know, he had done other little things over mm -hmm. the years. And so uh, Adrian said to him, look, can you get this family to Taipei, go there, be with them, and then get all of them to another country that we're still figuring out that will be that will accept them as asylum seekers, as people that, that are at risk of political persecution. Yeah. And so so he, he just, he just um, went on Expedia.com bought the tickets, met them in Taipei, kind of hung out with them um, and, and was trying to get them on a flight. The CIA showed up and um, said, you know, what are you guys doing? Do you have any idea, you know, what the risks are? And and um, they still tried to get them on a flight to the Netherlands, but the CIA guys went with them. And then on the other side, um, the Kim Hansol, his mother and his sister disappeared. And it's believed that they, they were brought to the United States instead of the Netherlands. Let me break to, in for a second. To, there. How, how yeah. do we, um, how do you think the CIA knew they were there at the airport in Taipei? Well, the, that day, they the day before, they had tried to mm -hmm. fly 
and the the airport um, security looked at their passports and, re and refused to allow them on the plane. So they went back into the airport and just sort of were living in this lounge. But clearly, whatever happened there, it, it triggered uh, an information mm. diffusion that led to potentially the CIA being notified. Yeah. But you know, they, I'm sure the CIA has many ways of knowing mm -hmm. things. You know, beyond that as well. And do you, um, why were they rejected from that earlier flight? Was that because of their citizenship or their names? I mean, I, 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 they can't be the only people traveling on DPRK passports flying out of Taipei. Well, I think for sure from the from the story of Christopher, mm -hmm. who who explained to me in detail what happened, it was the passports yeah. that that made them stop them. You know, I, I don't think there's a lot of people flying from Taipei to the Netherlands. I, I don't think that's going to be a common thing. I would I would even say there's not many North Koreans traveling on commercial airlines, period. You know, it's not a super common thing to happen. So, it, I mean, even that by itself is enough of a, it could be an issue, you know, and also do North Koreans need a visa to to arrive in the mm -hmm. Netherlands? I'm not sure, but it, it could be a number yeah. of reasons. But I don't think it was the name. I don't think it like instantly triggered a recognition. And the um, we've already mentioned the Netherlands. This in the video that that surfaced with a very short video showing Kim Hansol explaining that he was safe. That on the web page of uh, Cholima Civil Defense, the Netherlands and the then Netherlands ambassador to both South Korea and North Korea was specifically thanked. Uh, what was the Netherlands' role in that rescue mission? Well, they've never commented publicly about it, but my understanding is that using Adrian's long-running connections to people across Europe and the United States who would be involved in facilitating asylum-seeking from North Koreans, he was able to get the agreement of the Netherlands to accept Kim Hansel, his mother and his sister, as, as asylum seekers in, in the Netherlands. Ah. And um, sorry, somebody dropped something. Um, and so I think essentially they just agreed to to accept them, and that was what the thinking was about. It was it was a thanking them for agreeing to accept them, even though they diverted paths before they before they became asylum seekers in the Netherlands. Yeah. Now, as far as you can tell, was this diversion, this being whisked away at Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, um, not through uh, customs and visa and immigration, but onto a third place? As far as you can tell, was that done in accordance with the wishes of Kim Hansol and his family? Yes, I, I, I don't have any reason to believe that they were forcibly diverted. My guess would be, and this truly is a guess, because I this is something that I just couldn't know the answer to. My guess is... In, in the process of traveling from Taipei to the U.S., to, to the Netherlands, the CIA, CIA officers persuaded them that they would only be safe in America mm. and also persuaded them that in America they could live a life that they might want to live. You know, Kim Hansel was um, quite a westernized young mm. man and, um, and had lived in Paris and in um, Eastern Europe as well. And I think it just something about it appealed to them as a safer option. You know, like they, if, if they were at risk of assassination, they felt safer in the United States than they did in the Netherlands. Do you believe that they're in the United States now? Yes, I do believe that. He hasn't spoken publicly or, or made a video since that uh, that short one made at the airport in Taipei, has he? No, he hasn't. And and I can see why he has really no no need to say anything unless someday he he decides to contest mm. the, the dynasty in North Korea, which I don't necessarily see that as even a likely scenario and and also from the US point of view it's good that he's safe but they also don't really want to use him or acknowledge he's there because it's just one more thing that could cause a uh, an escalation mm. in the relationship you know with North Korea what do you make of that video uh, why why was it made and what what purpose did it serve well christopher told me that he, that he he made the video uh, after consulting with with uh, sorry christopher told me that he made the video after consulting with Adrian um, because they wanted to have a kind of insurance policy that there was nothing nefarious going on on their side, that they were that they were truly volunteers. So if you recall, the original video that went mm. up didn't mention Adrian's mm. name. It just said it, it was blacked out and it was and it was it was dubbed out at the parts where it gave any kind of unique identifier mm. to the group. So I think it was kind of an insurance policy. And, and also, you know, to some extent, things they were doing were kind of on the fly. It turned out to be a good idea, mm. too, just from a kind of promotional standpoint, yeah. 
because on screens across the world on CNN and stuff, this video showed right. up and I, and it put them on the map, but I don't even think it was actually a super thought through decision. It was more of like, okay, we might need this mm -hmm. later on kind of thing. Okay. Now let's uh, move on to the, uh, the, what I like to call the Madrid caper. How important is or was the Madrid embassy to the North Korean government? Well, it, if you talk to kind of people from the law enforcement community, intelligence community, it was considered a very important embassy, um, a, a kind of a mm. hub in Europe for revenue generating activities, mm. some of them being illegal activities, coordinating things like cigarette smuggling and, and other, you know, other variety of things that the North Korean government sponsors abroad to bring in foreign currency. It also had, you know, the, the former ambassador to the North Korean embassy in Spain was heavily involved with the Donald Trump discussions and negotiations. Yep. So there was also that kind of a history, you know, in terms of what might be in the embassy, in terms of intelligence from, from that period of time. And it, it was one of the bigger embassies in Europe. So I think it, it, it was an important one. You know, it's not, it's not like North Korea has a lot of embassies internationally. Mm. So this one was important. And, and also obviously, there was that guy. Um, what's the guy's name? I'm forgetting his name. The Spanish. Oh, Alejandro Caudebenos de Lesi Perez, head yes. of the Korea Friendship Association. Yes, exactly. And who was uh, famously outed in that amazing documentary, The Mole. The Mole. Yeah. yeah. So, so clearly, this was a place where they had connections, they had pathways that were interesting and important to them. Their actual relationship with the state of Spain, mm -hmm. I don't think, was critical. It was more being able to operate mm. in a in a relatively unencumbered, unharassed way in Europe. I think this was one of the embassies where they could do a lot. Now, as I understand, um, the uh, uh, the Madrid mission was precipitated by uh, the fact that the then commercial attache, Soyun Sok, uh, wanted to defect. Uh, as a result of your investigations, can you say that that's actually the case? Did he want to defect? Yes, for sure. That was the precipitating act. And and there was a previous trip to Spain by the mm. group with Adrian as well, which we detailed in the book as well. Now, now the, the part that gets complicated, the, the reason that this mission perhaps went as a rise it did, it all starts with communication. Mm. You know, this indication from the commercial attache that he wants to defect with his wife and his son, but also he explained he believed he could take the whole embassy mm. uh, as well that he believed that it was possible that the whole embassy would together uh, agree to defect. You say it was a large embassy. Do we know how many people were there at the time? Um, it was under okay. 10, but including some family yeah. members. But it was, you know, it was enough of a, it would, it would have been a, a major mm. symbolic yeah. event. Perhaps the most important symbolic event in, in opposition to North Korea in, in memory, mm. you know. So so there was, it was a very appealing prize. And at the same time, though, there was a kind of insurance plan because in the very mm -hmm. least, so even though the attache was was explaining his confidence and his belief that that's what they wanted to do and that the whole embassy would defect, yeah. there was also from the from the uh, Chuldama civil defense side, a kind of insurance policy that in the very least, the commercial attache, his wife and son mm -hmm. were going to defect. That much they knew for sure because it had been directly communicated to them. And so that's why they hatched this plan to give it a kind of, to, to, to create an illusion mm. of a kidnap. Uh, now, you, you write that the uh, the fake kidnapping was staged in order to ensure that So Yun Sok's family back in North Korea, that is, his parents, his grandparents and siblings, would not suffer any punishment as a result of his defection, because obviously if he'd been kidnapped, then it wasn't his choice. Now, ultimately, we, we know that he did not defect, uh, but chose to stay. And we'll get to why he made that fateful decision in a moment. But have you found anything to suggest that So and his family have been punished as a result? As far as I can tell so far, the the North Korean government has is confused mm. about what happened in Spain. Mm. They they may be reading reports and and they may it's possible that someone would read my book and see that it's it's you know these western sources are saying that so wanted to defect but meanwhile so mm. himself and the and the fellow members of the staff are all swearing up and down that they uh, were attacked, yeah. uh, you know, out of nowhere, and 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 in a way, it's also kind of tricky because if let's say that North Korea no longer believed its own staff 
and and wanted to bring them all back and perhaps throw them into a prison camp or something mm. like that, then the case they have in Spain would fall mm. apart. If there is no embassy staff there, they can't they can't argue that their staff were were assaulted and 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 they could they couldn't explain mm -hmm. why they wouldn't be sending them as witnesses in this criminal yeah. case. So for the time being, it sort of suits them pretty well because the Spanish government has bought this argument that the unprovoked a bunch of people just ran in there and tried to kidnap and, and harm the North Korean residents of the embassy, you know? Yeah. So I think it's like it's all kind of trapped in this limbo. It's limbo for the for the free Joseon mm. Cholama civil defense side. It's limbo for the North Koreans. Although when I was reporting the book, I did speak to Alejandro briefly. Mm who told me that all of the staff that were there, with the exception of So, had been sent oh. back to North Korea. And we had not heard what happened to them or or anything mm. like that. No, and and I personally buzzed the yeah. door of the embassy a couple of months mm -hmm. ago when I was in Madrid, and they told me that So was unavailable to mm. speak. But they 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 also said that he was still the acting commercial attaché. Mm -hmm. So it's still pretty murky, yeah. but... The, the the information you're asking, what, what is the status of the residents of that embassy from that time is kind of fundamental to the yeah. whole story because it, it will change the results too. If they're all gone, then there's no way that they that the, that case can really stand either, you know? So does the fact that somebody's still there, I mean, as you say, Mr. Sai is probably still there, does that show that North Korea places a priority on, on pushing that case through the Spanish courts? I think I think it's part of the reason mm -hmm. why, you know, I think it's part of the reason why. So so we'll yeah. see, we'll see the answer. But I think, you know, the, the Spanish criminal process is not um, something that I'm as familiar mm -hmm. with as, for example, the British or the American system. And so we don't really hear updated uh, information about the case. Mm -hmm. There's not really a public uh, explanation of where the case mm -hmm. is at or if it's even being pursued mm -hmm. still. So it's it's a really confusing situation. Okay. Know? So what went wrong with the mission? So what went wrong with the mission is it it comes down to um, one core thing. Cholama civil defense is made up primarily of of volunteers without any real expertise mm. in things like this. You know, even a foreign government would be loath to try something so audacious yeah. as to stage a kidnapping to go through the front door with with fake mm -hmm. guns and handcuffs and to stage a kidnapping, and then to exfiltrate uh, a, a senior official of a foreign country. You know, it's it's a, it's an unbelievable mm. mission, unbelievably risky. And of course, something is going to go wrong. I mean, even, even the group was aware of different eventualities. Like, for example, it could have been that they couldn't go through the front door. You know, they, they got, they kind of got lucky that their, their ploy worked, which was they, 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 they allowed Adrian inside mm. to wait while one of the officials went upstairs to get the the uh, commercial attaché, and then Adrian opened the door and they all ran inside. But in the event that Adrian wasn't left inside, they had ladders that they were going to mm. use to scale the walls. You know, they had other plans, other ideas. So what happened is everything was going actually remarkably fluidly and well because they got inside, they were able to kind of secure the building, and they got everything was in motion you know and 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 it was all supposed to be over in like under yeah. an hour you know but what happened was two things one is um the commercial attache wanted to kind of discuss the mm. plans so that was a, a delaying uh factor with, with adrian and his team you mean okay. yes with adrian and his team and there was actually videos which i've seen of some of those discussions and it's like you know the he's laughing and talking to them but but he's also not ready to mm. leave in within minutes you know he wants to kind of talk it through he's nervous and i think it's actually understandable because there is a an aspect that i've learned about north korea which is the the power of the kind of mental conditioning of north korea is that even things that seem obviously mm -hmm. safe like walking out of the front door of the embassy and getting into a car and being whisked away seem incredibly perilous in the with that North Korean conditioning, you know, that there's an omnipotent force that's watching over mm -hmm. them that could kill them and, and destroy them at any mm -hmm. moment. Um, so the other thing that happened was clearly the thing that the commercial attache had told the group about the whole embassy defecting had not been communicated a hundred percent 
in, in the mm. very least, it, even if it's been communicated, be, communicated beyond himself, it's not even mm. clear. But one of the wives of one of the other officials um, completely panicked mm. when she heard South Korean accented yep. men coming into the building, you know, a, a lot of loud noises as they rushed in securing mm. the place. And she um, she really panicked and she she thought her life was over within yeah. minutes and that maybe everyone else in the embassy had already been killed. So I'll just go, I'll just go back a second. So um, this woman that was the wife of one of the officials completely mm -hmm. panicked. She heard that this accent, she actually later told um, investigators that she thought many people had already been killed. Yeah. She had assumed that it was all killing going yeah. on. So she jumped off of a balcony. She injured mm. herself in the process. And she was bleeding quite profusely from the head. And she also had a uh, injured oh. hip that she later had to get surgery for. It's, it's not entirely clear if it was a fracture or something else. Anyways, in this state, she crawled to a um, a hidden door that only embassy staff really mm. knew about. There was an exit. And and I, I, I went and saw all this myself. It's a very well-concealed exit. Oh, so this is a, a door that leads to outside the, the, the wall of the compound in which the embassy yes. sits. Okay. So it's an external. It, it leads to a it leads to a kind of dirt alleyway yeah. that's very narrow in between the building and the next yeah. building, and it's it's something that you would never have really known about Gosh. unless you were really carefully watching. Yeah. So she crawled from there out into the street. You know, um, there was no one watching the mm -hmm. street from this group, and she hailed a passerby. She was taken to a nearby clinic. They couldn't tell at first what was going on. They asked her if she was Chinese. Yeah. She said yes. And they called the Chinese embassy. Then they realized that she couldn't speak right. Chinese. Eventually, they were able to use some kind of an app. I think it was like Google Translate sure. to figure out that she was Korean or she spoke Korean yeah. rather. And um, and at first, she told them crazy mm. things. And they, they thought she had gone yeah. insane. They, she said to them that um, people were eating her her compatriots inside the uh. embassy. And, um, and, and that just really, again, speaks to the conditioning because... Only somebody whose mind is truly conditioned to believe the most outrageous things about your enemies would think that that would be what they would do. They would enter your embassy, kill you, and eat you. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, so then, so th this was about this. This this was where problem two collided with problem one. Problem one was the mm -hmm. delay caused by the attaché. Problem two was one person went missing and nobody even knew she was missing. Gosh. Right. Nobody knew because they, they didn't know the exact number of people inside and all that kind of thing. So then the police mm. came to the front door of the embassy following up on the woman's complaint yeah. about people being. Attacked. Now, this would have been I mean, all this would have taken some time. I'm guessing at least two hours from the moment she jumped out of the building, you'd think. Yeah, I think we're in the two hour range yeah. now. Um, and, and eventually it became many, many more hours than that. But. The, so so anyways, they came to the door and Adrian in a in a kind of classic Adrian moment rose to the yep. challenge. He put on the 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 dear leader pen. He went downstairs, pretended to be a North Korean mm. official, and basically shooed them away. But because he speaks Spanish, they, they couldn't prevent he speaks Spanish and he speaks Korean, obviously. Yeah. And so he um he successfully waved the police away. And actually the police kind of gave yep. up because they thought, well, there's not much we can yep. do here. This is like a this is actually sovereign yeah. territory. They, they waited nearby in their cruiser, but there wasn't, for example, more police mm. showed up. They just kind of stayed nearby watching the mm -hmm. building. But unfortunately, Adrian, in discussions with um, this attache, mm -hmm. explained what had happened. And, and the attache learned that a member of the household had mm. left and had called the police and that things were really not looking good. And he was already nervous enough about this whole mission because of that conditioning. Yeah. That he he essentially was starting to waver, and over the following couple of hours, um, other things happened. For example, the phone started yeah. ringing nonstop, yeah. just like a never-ending ringing of the phone. And this is kind of an eerie thing because the building is quite empty and marble-floored, mm. so it was just this kind of like menacing, endless ringing, and it and it sort of almost symbolically represented the North Korean yeah. state. They know. They know what happened. They're sending people here right mm. now. So in the in the in the mind of this attaché, eventually was, you guys can't keep me safe. I have to I have to now pretend like you were invaders mm. and and that we and that and that you you ran away after stealing stuff from our embassy. Right. You know, and so at, at that point, Adrian and the whole group they take the cars, the embassy cars, and they all leave. And Adrian actually jumps out the back and crosses a huge field and gets an Uber. 
So it's pretty amazing, like yeah. cinematic. But scene, they, they you know? did take some stuff with them, and and some people did get roughed up, didn't they? Well, so so the roughing up part is is something that happened after oh. they left. Yes. So so think about it as well. If you're the attaché, you're the staff, and you're not roughed up, and you're telling your bosses from Pyongyang that you were that you you were invaded, you better have some marks mm. to prove that you um, fought back, right? right? So, like for example, this, just think about this: the attaché himself told police he was roughed up, mm -hmm. right? But if there's one person in the story that would not be roughed up in the story, it would be the attaché. He was the one that was, you know, s triggered this entire defection in the first mm -hmm. place. You know, it's not like Adrian, this well-known human rights advocate, is going to start punching him in the face or something because he doesn't want to defect. It's obviously this was like not initiated by Free Joseon or Cholama Civil Defense. It was initiated mm -hmm. by him. Anyways, th this group later on, and it's and there's no actual evidence of of injuries. There's just some reports mm -hmm. of it. They reported it. There's not like um, you know, uh, as far as I can tell, and I have checked quite extensively. There's no photographs of injuries and things mm. like that. The only evidence left is all these weapons, yeah. right? Which is imitation pistols mm. that were that that you could buy from a place that sells movie props, mm. and then some handcuffs, and there were some knives, which are true weapons. Yeah, and then they they did they did clean out the kind of intelligence assets of that embassy. So they took all the computer hard drives, mm -hmm. USB sticks. They thought they took all the tapes from the cameras. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, there was a backup um, tape that they didn't know about that they didn't capture, which is why we have footage of them out front of the embassy entering. Right. That, that was because the backup camera was still active. And that's been released to the public, has it? Yeah, that, was, that came about because the Spanish leader filed an extradition request uh, in yeah. the U.S., where, where court records are very public. Right. And in their extradition request, they included all the stills yeah. from the camera. Now, North Korea called this a, quote, grave terrorist attack. Uh, and But Adrian Hong said that it is, quote, no longer trespassing if you're invited. Now, even assuming that Hong and An were right in saying that it was a fake kidnapping uh, to help a North Korean diplomat defect from the embassy, it it was a, a breach of everything that embassies are supposed to be. Did they reject the idea that a DPRK embassy is a legitimate embassy because they don't agree with the government? I, I think that seems clear to me. I mean, I think it's it's a perfect example of the uh, kind of conundrum mm. that Adrian has always presented to anyone who deals with him or talks to him. If you say to him, well, there are certain rules about embassies and you know, we it, it, this is supposed to be sacred ground for diplomacy. Right. I think he would have a very strong counter point, which is this is not a country where rule of law mm. is flourishing. This is not a country that uses diplomacy uh, in the way that you're describing. You know, this isn't like the U.S. Uh, invading the the British embassy or something like that. Yeah. You know, it's very different. So I think he would just argue that the cause that they were pursuing is is justifies these things and i think that's what's very controversial about adrian i think many people including in the kind of uh north korean human rights community will be will be torn in two directions or maybe they'll just outright disagree with adrian's point of view mm. but that's that's kind of he's kind of a thorn in the side he's kind of like the conscience mm. of the the community that watches these issues because he's saying look you can't tell me that people need to suffer decades more under this regime because of rules around embassy protocol, mm. you know? And so it's it's hard, it's hard one to to deal with. Now, Christopher Anna, as far as I'm aware, is the only one who's actually in danger of being extradited to Spain. What's the, the current state of his proceedings? Well, so just to be clear, multiple people were sought under an extradition request. Mm. Adrian and another one called Sam disappeared. And they're currently fugitives and they're disappeared. They just completely disappeared. So you have no idea where they are? No, I don't have any idea where they are. And if I did, I probably wouldn't say either. But but um, sure, just, just because that's not my place to cause him to, you know, uh, turn himself in or get arrested or whatever. But um, mm. and then Christopher was the only one arrested. There was many others were sought in South Korea mm. under an extradition request. So Spain requested information and and also the presence of several south koreans mm -hmm. who were part of the mission and the south korean government declined to provide any information really and and declined to, to present them as 
as potential um, criminal suspects. So Christopher got extremely unlucky because in some ways mm. he was he was triply unlucky. On one level, he wasn't really part of the fundamental core of this group. He wasn't part of the decision-making or the strategy part of it. He was just a volunteer from time to time, as we saw with Kim mm -hmm. Hansel. And on this mission, he almost didn't come. He didn't really know what the mission was about. He just knew that there was a big mission in Spain. They'd like his help. And at first he said he couldn't do it. He was busy, you know, in his personal life. But in the end, he decided mm -hmm. to take a, an extra day off and come help. He learned only on the ground about what the mission was, you know, and, mm. and was told, listen, the entire embassy wants to defect. This is what we're going to do. And he felt the kind of gravity of it, the weight of it, but he didn't really know the risk. You know, he didn't really truly mm. have a chance to even breathe because he landed that morning, the same morning of the mission um, from California. So, I mean, this is like an, a long, long flight. Yeah. Um, so later on, they when 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 Adrian and all the other Frijosan members went back to the U.S., they actually first thing they did was they reported what happened to the FBI because they wanted them to know that they they, they wanted certain powerful people to know that it wasn't what it looked like. They sent a letter to the Spanish government within hours of the mission falling apart, and then they went to the FBI to explain as well. But it turned out to kind of bite them in the in the in the end because. The U.S. government has an extradition treaty, a mutual legal assistance agreement with Spain, mm. so that if there's a crime in Spain and the U.S. knows about it, they have to help them, no matter what their belief is, because it's it's about providing evidence. So, in fact, everything yeah. that Adrian did became evidence for Spain's case against Adrian, um, yeah. and and even Christopher, he was the FBI wanted to meet them and and debrief them on it, and he did so. He invited them into his house, and they were very friendly to him. Later on, they called and said. By the way, we have credible information that your lives are now at risk, that North Korea mm. is interested in assassinating you. Yeah. Um, so he had no idea whatsoever that there was going to be like a an extradition problem. Mm. They were more worried about assassination problem and about their yeah. personal safety. So he, Christopher went to Adrian's house uh, to drop something off. When he opened the door, it was the U.S. Marshal Service. They put a gun to his head. Oh, and 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 part of the reason why is that he was actually carrying a gun too. He had a license uh, to carry a firearm as a as as a you know he a completely legal yeah. uh, license, but obviously it it, uh, it probably increased the kind of um, intensity of the moment to see yeah. that he was armed as well. Anyways, they put a gun to his head. They arrested him, and he thought it was a misunderstanding that he'd be out that day. Mm. But in fact, it was just the beginning of a truly Kafka esque legal predicament where Spain is trying to extradite him still. Yeah. He had to stay in jail for a, a long period of time. He had to then stay in a true house arrest for another very long period of time. Mm. Only now is he able to kind of travel around within with an ankle monitor and report in all the time to the authorities. And he's fighting extradition. The, the judge actually wrote this very fascinating um, uh, ruling where she, mm -hmm. she ruled that he was eligible to be extradited but that she thought it was actually the wrong thing to do, and she was she appealed to an she appealed and wrote said I want a higher court to overrule my decision because wow. essentially her decision was about was he legally eligible yeah. for extradition, and she ruled he was, but she thought that he shouldn't be actually extradited. You know, mm. so he's in a really bad situation, and there's really no solution. All he can do is fight the extradition all mm. the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which mm. would take time, yeah. like it could take. Uh, it could take 10 years even. Sure. And then on the other hand, he could go to Spain and face face the charges there, but really with without any certainty of knowing how they would pursue the case. Because yeah. let, let's say that they decided that the existence of a knife in the embassy was enough mm. to say that he had broken the law. Yeah. Then he, he could be sent to prison for that. Maybe, maybe, maybe it doesn't matter if the embassy staff are all gone and they just make the decision based on that. That's the risk he faces. So he's in a very bad situation and he actually hasn't able to, been able to work properly ever since this happened. You know, so he's really a struggle. He's really struggling in a major way. Why did he choose to speak with you? Well, you know, in, in journalism, it's, it's, it's often the other way around. It's how did I persuade him to speak to me? I think, you know, he has spoken to other people. He spoke to the New Yorker. Mm -hmm. um, he's given another, a few other interviews, but I, I think that I, I really put in the time to get to know him, to to understand him, to to listen to him, and I think that helped make him feel trusting to tell me as much as he did. You know all the details of this 
And um, and then that's the same that went for many people that are connected in some way to this case. Uh, I you know I personally feel very emotionally um, touched by this mm-hmm. case because to me, I, I I was objective in the book and I included things in there that probably are inconvenient, even mm-hmm. you know things that don't necessarily just a hundred percent help this group. Because I, I, at first and foremost, is my allegiance to the audience, to the readers. You know, yeah. th- that's who I, that's who I report for. But in this case, I do feel a profound um, sorrow and pain to see what Christopher is going through, mm. and to imagine what the family of Adrian Hong's going through. You know, he has a wife and a mm. small child that he hasn't seen for years, as far wow. as I can tell. You know. Did Adrian speak to you as well? I've spoken to Adrian many times, and and throughout the reporting of this book, I spoke to member many members of the group, but I can only really point to what the book says. Yeah. Now I imagine you're uh, familiar with the uh, the New Yorker piece by Suki Kim, published in November 2020, entitled "The Underground Movement Trying to Topple the North Korean Regime." Uh, she apparently spoke at length to Hong before writing that article. Did her article match up with what you discovered in your book? Yeah, I think so. I think I found that to be a very nice article. Uh, it it to, to me, what was revelatory about it was at the time, that was the first time that Christopher had spoken. So the mm. only thing in there that was struck me as new was the the Christopher um, story. He he gave the first accounting of mm. the Kim Han Sol case. Um, the rest of it was what, what we kind of knew already, you know, yeah. that this was an underground organization, that Adrian had founded it, that he started off with Link, all that kind of thing, you know? One thing that confused me was that while her article says that nine men followed Adrian Hong into the embassy, your book says only five men. How um, how should I account for that discrepancy or how should I make sense of that? There, there were a number of people on the mission. Not all of them went in the embassy. You know, ah. So there was people outside, there was people inside. And also in the timeline is pretty fascinating. You know, They go inside mm. and then later on um, another member who we identify as this uh, North Korean escapee, Charles Rue, mm. he entered the embassy later, you know, as part of the plan, because he his his entry, again, you can see this in the Free Joseon YouTube uh, channel, yeah. they recorded him entering it as, as the first time he's returned to North Korean territory. Uh, they don't identify him, they blur his face, but it right. was later, you know, public, he was publicly outed later on as having been the person that was on the mission. So, it's it's a little bit of a confusing multi-hour affair. Yeah. Do, do you conclude now that, or have you concluded that that uh, Christopher Anna or Adrian Hong or the group in general had any support or guidance from U.S. or other intelligence agencies? I, from all of my reporting, one hundred percent no, because because ultimately this this kind of a group is the worst nightmare of a formal intelligence mm. agency of a country. They're extremely risk-taking, mm. a high chance of failure and, and exposure, right? And also, if you think about it, at the time this was happening, the U.S. government was doing the exact opposite thing. They were trying to reach a kind of, quote, historic peace peace arrangement between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, right? So there was no, there was no way that this would be a sanctioned mission. And even if the U.S. government did want to support a group like this, I think they would they would probably just, in the end, not do it because mm. it's just too risky and there's too much blowback potential, you know? Mm. And even, even the response of Spain, in fact, is in part because of the U.S. CIA's history of, of activity in Europe. So, you know, after 9-11, there was all these extraordinary renditions mm. that, that basically threw caution to the wind and and rule of law in those countries, you know, just completely disrespected them. There was an impression in Spain, I I was told by um, somebody close with some of these officials that this was classic US cowboy behavior, you know, they sent these guys in and things like that. But I I, I 100% believe Mm -hmm. there's no formal government help for this group at all. In fact, the only thing that I think we would find if we were to have all the answers we could ever find is that we might find a kind of a quirky group of donors mm. that were giving a relatively small amount of money to Adrian, not even necessarily knowing exactly what he was up to. You know, I, I think just knowing that he was up to something. And and this was a cash-strapped organization. This was mm. not, they were not uh, well-funded. They didn't have any resources or assets you know, they they did everything on their credit cards. Christopher on just lost money on all these mm. things he did. He just booked it on his credit card and paid the bills. That was just his. That's his problem. 
Adrian never called him up and said, you know what, let me pay for it. Right. He kind of relied on everyone to kind of chip in. Yeah. Is this a case of ordinary people who decided that they wanted to change the world? That's that's truly how I feel. It, although perhaps it's a little oversimplifying, and I, I have said that many times. I think Adrian is pretty exceptional as a human being mm. in that he had this unbelievable confidence and uh, mission-driven um, aspect that you don't find every day in people. And he also had a, a charisma, a magnetism, an ability to lead mm. and to persuade people that they could make a difference, even if they had no, if even if there was no reason in the world that they that they should be able to make a difference. And even Christopher pointed this out to me that um, one of the predecessors of Cholema Civil Defense was something called the Joseon Institute, which was basically making blueprints mm. for what to do when the Kim dynasty fell, you know, how to how to reform the education system and get the power grid back on. And he he really empowered ordinary school teachers to think that they could contribute to a blueprint mm. for the future of North Korea. And, and I think he had that that amazing ability. Now, on the other hand, Adrian has no training. No, uh, he never worked for a government agency and, yeah. you know, went to spy school or anything like that. And most of the people in this group, even if they had a little bit of military experience or something like that, they were truly well-to-do for the most part or from, from you know, hardworking families. They got good grades. They went to universities. They got good jobs and they had families, that kind of thing. Mm. This was not um, a group of of radicals. This wasn't like... Uh, an underground, like a Bader Meinhof king. You know, this yeah. was this wasn't the the uh, the weather underground. This was mm. actually more of a yuppie led group. Mm. So I do think that there is something very inspiring about believing that even you can make a difference in the world mm. it, by doing by just doing it by taking action. And so, so I think there is two sides to that point. Is uh, Free Chosun still in existence and active, as far as you know? I I, I know that Free Chosun still exists in a sense. But but very clearly, it all depended on Adrian. And Adrian has gone underground. Mm -hmm. And he is not someone, as far as I can tell, who's in constant communication with anyone on Earth. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, I think it's fairly paralyzed. You know, it, it's kind of exists in a hibernating state. Yeah. And if Adrian were to reemerge, if the case was dropped against him, if things like that happened, there would be... Uh, a new incarnation. I don't think it could it could no longer be the underground railroad it used to be, but it mm. could be a more public facing, you know, almost a quite intense anti-Kim regime group. It could it could emerge as something like that, but I, I'm not, it would be hard to imagine that they continue they could continue or they would continue doing kind of these high risk underground railroad style things. At the beginning of the book, you posed the question, is Adrian Hong really doing things or is he pretending? It sounds like uh, you've concluded that he's really, at least until he went underground, he was really doing things. He wasn't pretending. He was for real. Yeah, well, that, that goes to my personal relationship. You know, I met him in 2011 mm. um, in a kind of random way during the Libyan Civil War. I was a reporter there and I, I would meet him many, many times over the years. And I was drawn to him just like anyone would be. And I was hoping that he would be a good source, you know, that he might be able to help me write about things like sanction evasion for North Korea, things like that. But yeah. in fact, no, nothing ever came of our relationship. We just had this, we were able, we were drawn to each other, perhaps in some way, um, to, to talk to each other and discuss things and and think big. But I, I was always wondering to myself, because he was never quite open with me about what he was up to, you know. Mm. And so I, I wondered sometimes, especially in the early days, whether or not he was kind of a tourist why was he in Libya? Was he just a mm. tourist, like a kind of a thrill seeker? And he also even struck me at the time as being kind of wealthy, which I later realized was, again, just what the confidence he was wearing, because he always wore a suit. He always looked mm. very confident and 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 unbothered by mm. material things. But I think so from those early days till now, now I realized, I think I've realized through the process of learning and talking to everyone I could in, in the world about Adrian, that he was doing so much more than I ever imagined. And at so much greater risk to himself and at so much greater deprivation, all of those moments when I thought he was like a well-to-do businessman, it was actually an illusion. He was, he was spending every dime he made on this stuff wow. and probably to the disappointment of many people around him that, mm. that he was so absorbed, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, look, uh, people of course make choices for a number of reasons, but you know, I would think that uh, instead of a logical, purely rational, um, 
what's the word, utilitarian world that a person like Adrian would probably eschew things like uh, having a, a wife and a child just to focus on that. It, it's interesting that he, he chose to try to have both. And, and now, he, he, uh, as you say, he's not really um, communicating with anybody on a regular basis. So now he has neither. It's very sad for him. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's it's a very sad story and, and it's not over yet. You know, there's not a lot of things to be hopeful about right now because it's mm. really, it's in this potentially years-long limbo state. Now, Free Chorson claims to have helped many North Korean elites defect discreetly to other countries without getting any media coverage. Do you find that claim to be true? I mean, in the book, I reported about other cases, and I mentioned other cases more obliquely. I do believe that there's um, probably, we see about 30 to 40 percent of what they've been up to over the years, you know, so far. Mm -hmm. And um, some of that, some of those other missions are not necessarily diplomats, but they're also elites, essentially, people that are from that top caste mm. of the North Korean society who have a lot of information about how things work in the in the power structures but not in the you know the traditional political class necessarily yeah now bradley you've written this book in the style of uh, a real page turner it's quite a thriller do you see this as a, as a film or a limited series on uh, on a streaming service you know i do think that there is a good film to do about this case is everything that happened in spain was so cinematic you know mm. But I think also the other thing is I hope that someday there's a, a documentary version because Sam, this member of the group, was filming ah. during during a lot of their work and had 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 plans for his own documentary. And I, I just feel like there's there's potentially a really great documentary to be done too. Has it been optioned by anyone yet? No, it hasn't. Okay. Uh, now, does writing it in in that sort of a style mean that you uh, have to sacrifice rigor and accuracy for narrative interest and excitement? No, I don't think so. I mean, this is this is my third book, and I've, I've always used the same style. You know, it, I think in a sense, if you want to write a book with a lot of detail and narrative propulsion, you actually have to do a lot more reporting mm. than you do if you want to write a book, just want to write a book about the topic. Yeah. Because essentially what you have to do is you have to almost start again at the, at the very beginning and re-interview everyone and really mm. kind of go in a, in a painstaking way about every moment. What was it like? What did you see? What did you hear? Yeah. You have to find interesting ways of, of cross-verifying, finding other forms of media as well. One mm. of the ideas that I, I often use is try to find other footage, at least to review, even if you mm. can't publish it, because it, it, it contains a lot of information about a scene and about what happened. And so... And also, it's, it comes to my kind of core belief in, in, in my new company, Project Brazen. We just believe that the best way to do high-quality journalism is to make it a very compelling story. No one wants to just read a book that is a series of facts lined up one after another. They want to read a story. And so it, it's a lot harder, but it's a lot more valuable and rewarding to tell it in a way that people want to read to the end. Because, you know, how many ordinary people in America or somewhere else would read a book about North Korea? Mm. Very few. How many would read an amazing escape story, like the story of um, Aquariums of Pyongyang or, yeah. or any of the other great escape stories? Um, many, many, yeah. many people connect with that, you know? So at the end of the day, sometimes journalism, people get a little bit high and mighty about the style. Mm. And, and what they sacrifice is the readership. And the readership to me is is very important to have a big readership, a big audience for things. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you once again uh, for coming on the show today, Bradley Hope. You've clearly done a, an incredible painstake amount, uh, painstaking amount of research to put this all together and made a, a very interesting book. I recommend listeners check it out. The Rebel and the Kingdom, the true story of the secret mission to overthrow the North Korean regime. You'll find that at all good bookstores and you'll find Bradley Hope on Twitter at Bradley Hope. Uh, also, uh, Bradley, you've shared with me a, uh, a podcast that you've uh, put together uh, with uh, Project Brazen. Uh, can we share that link in the show notes to this uh, episode? Sure. My pleasure. Great. We'll put that in the show notes there. Yeah. So thank you once again for coming on the show and, and good luck with uh, sales of the book and with turning it into a uh, film series or, uh, or documentary. 
Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News subscription, take a look at our NK Pro platform, which offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can inquire about access and a free trial membership by writing an email to membership at nknews.org today. Also, if you have questions, feedback or suggestions for guests, do send them along to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, go to Arius Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this episode and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks and listen again next time. Mm-hmm.